Well, you can always hope, can't you? <laughs> I notice you're not supposed to envy anybody, but I was noticing Brother Bruce this morning how he was able to get his hair fixed like that, and I tried to fix mine different, and it just don't fix different. It just goes the way it wants to go. This morning, for at least a little while, we may get back to our lesson, uh, regular lesson, but we do want to kind of get something concerning old times, and we're going to uh, deal a little while in the book of Jeremiah, the uh, sixth chapter. And I'm going to try to read a few verses there to give you the gist of what we're talking about. Now, Jeremiah began his ministry in the 13th year of Josiah, about 60 years after Isaiah's death. And after the de death of Josiah, the kingdom was really coming to an end, real close to Babylonian captivity. And uh, Jeremiah remained in the land after the captivity, and he was ministering to the poor remnant, or those that were left there, until they was all taken into Egypt. And then Jeremiah followed them there, prophesying before and doing the exile of Judah. And uh, he laid the axe more or less at the root of the tree. And in this particular chapter, and these verses, he's, making an appeal to the people that I thought probably would be appropriate for us this morning. Reading from the ninth verse, I'll just read them down to and including, I think, probably the 17th verse. Chapter 6, Jeremiah chapter 6, ninth verse, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, They shall thoroughly glean the remnant of Israel as a vine, Turn back thine hand as grape gathers into the baskets. To whom shall I speak and give warning that they may hear? Behold, their ear is uncircumcised, and they cannot hearken. Behold, the word of the Lord is unto them a reproach. They have no delight in it. Therefore I am full of fury of the Lord. I am weary with holding in. I will pour it out upon the children abroad, and upon the assembly of young men together, for even the husband with the wife shall be taken, and the aged with them that is full of days. And their houses shall be turned unto others, with their field and wives together. For I will stretch out mine hand upon the inhabitants of the land, saith the Lord. For from the least of them, even unto the greatest of them, every one is given to covetousness. And from the prophet, even to the priest, Every one dealeth falsely. They have healed the hurt of the daughter of my people slightly, saying, Peace, peace, when there is no peace. Were they ashamed when they had committed abomination? Nay, they were not at all ashamed, neither could they blush. Therefore they shall fall among them that fall. At the time that I will visit them, they shall be cast down, saith the Lord. Thus saith the Lord, Stand ye in the ways, and see and ask for the old paths, wherein is the good way, and walk therein, and ye shall find rest for your soul. But they said, We will not walk therein. Also I set a watchman over you, saying, Hearken to the sound of the trumpet. But they said, We will not hearken. I read all that to say this, Israel 
at that time was facing, of course, exile, expulsion. Jeremiah was a prophet that was sent to them. Now, Jeremiah was told, as well as Ezekiel and some of the older prophets, that he was going to send them into these people and they were going to speak. He was going to speak that they wasn't going to hear. And sometimes when we get weary as individuals and as ministers and individual saints, you know, witnessing, sometimes it's good to refresh our mind and memory that these prophets of old was told that they wasn't going to have one single convert. And yet they still had a message to proclaim and it was their duty and their responsibility to proclaim this message in spite of whether individuals listened or not. So in the midst of a darkened world that we live in where people does not heed the witnessing or the life lived for the Lord Jesus Christ and sometimes weariness sets in on us and we wonder what is, is the price we're paying worth, what we're getting out of it. And we simply have to be reminded of this, that it is not ours to draw them in, it is only ours to witness, it's only ours to speak, it's only ours to live the life. Only ours to make this thing which we claim is the perfect way. It's only ours to make this an example where individuals would want to follow it. Now, eyes are blinded, we realize that. Hearts are hardened. And sometimes we're living almost in parallel times that Jeremiah lived in. Isaiah, of course, caught part of that. And then some of the minor prophets were living almost in parallel times where they have turned their ears away from God. And it said from the prophet in the 13th verse, even unto the priest, everyone dealeth falsely. In other words, he was talking about not just the people, but also individuals that were supposed to be leaders, individuals that were supposed to have a message that would challenge individuals and priest, the one that was supposed to be responsible for the house, tabernacle of God, even they had become weary in the midst of a weary land and wondered if living upright was really profitable. And because of that, then they began to deal falsely. I'm sure that started out on a small scale and finally become to the place where the nostrils of God couldn't handle it anymore. Sometimes man does send away his days of grace. I mean, you can see that written throughout the Bible where God simply has to turn them over, as he says, to a reprobate mind, let them do that which is unseemly. But because they do that, and because they seem to get by with it, it's no sign the eyes of God is not upon them. Judgment Day is around the corner someplace. I mean, whether it's here in this world or in the world to come, it's still good to live a profitable life for the Lord Jesus Christ. It's still good to be a witness to the Lord Jesus Christ, whether... Our witness falls on deaf ears or not, or whether our life lived and our light held out seems to uh, do anything in the darkness at all and people don't comprehend it, it's still good to live a life for Jesus Christ in this day and hour. We do our best, and that's all that God asks us to do. And he was telling them, actually, what was happening in their life, and then he... Uh, caused Jeremiah to ask a question, were they ashamed that they had committed abominations? Were they ashamed? And you know, I think that's what God looks for, don't you? Uh, a lot of us commit abominations or things that's not right in his sight, and as long as there's a conscience that can be touched. 
as long as when we do that, when we're tricked by that, or a snare is laid there, and, and a conscience can be touched that says it's not right, and then we go and confess to God and try to turn our way around, God sees that. But he asked the question here, were they ashamed? And then, of course, he said, no, they were not at all ashamed, neither could they blush. And therefore, when mankind gets to that place, well, then the judgment of God is certainly has to be right around the corner. A just God can't stand and look on it like this. And uh, so he says, then, in appeal. Now, remember, this is God speaking through Jeremiah. It was hard then, as well as it is today, for individuals to believe that God, using human voices and human lips and a human tongue and a human body, it's hard for us to believe that's actually God trying to talk to us. And sometimes because of that, we'll just turn the voice of God off. But God used Jeremiah, and he used Isaiah, and he used all, all of them all down through the ages of time, and he still uses humanity to reach his people. That's God's way. And the quicker we realize that, I think the better off we're going to be. And so he uses Jeremiah, and he makes what I feel like, after reading Jeremiah, what I feel like is really a final appeal to individuals, as he says, stand ye in the ways, and see, and ask, for the old paths, wherein is the good way, and walk therein, and ye shall find rest for your soul. In other words, he wasn't promising these individuals that heard his word. He wasn't promising to turn the captivity away. Evil was so prevalent in those days that God, the justice of God couldn't look upon it. But he was simply saying to these individuals, once this comes, if you will stand in the midst of that and uh, stand in the ways at the fork of the roads. In other words, Israel at that time was coming to a fork in the roads. And he's saying, stand there now and look and see and ask. He said, ask and you shall receive, seek and you shall find, knock and it shall be opened unto you. That's consistent all throughout the Bible. And he simply says, you stand there in the ways you see and then you ask for the old paths, wherein is the good way, and then not only ask for it, but then you walk therein and you shall find rest for your soul. Now, to me, that's quite a challenging statement. God was telling them, in a sense, that dispersion was imminent. It was going to happen. Israel was going to be judged. They was going to be taken into captivity. But in the final analysis, if individuals in the midst of this adverse condition would simply stand there and see what is the old path and where is the good way and walk there and then in the midst of all of this, they're going to find rest for their soul. I think maybe God is talking to us today in a parallel situation. Of course, our nation is not taken captive yet. The light of the church is still shining, regardless of how weak it might be shining. It is still shining, and God is still having intercessory prayer, people with intercessory prayer for the salvation of our, of our nation. But he is appealing. He is talking to individuals make them realize that the situation in this world is not going to change until he comes. That uh, times are going to increase and things are going to get worse and individuals are going to more and more turn their ears from truth and the table. And he's trying to reach us with that and he said, now in the midst of these times, 
I want you to stand there and look and ask yourself and ask for the old paths and then when you ask for them, walk there in and you're going to find in the midst of all of this, you're going to find a rest for your soul. I don't know the time that individuals, now I'm not talking about the world, out there they'll never find it in Europe, but we have been invited as God's people to come into his presence and been invited to rest in him. And I don't know the time when individual Christians need to look not at this world and not at the new ways that seeming to coming and, and flooding the church world, but look and ask for the old paths and the old ways, and then in the midst of this, and in the midst of the world continually going down, and in the midst of people one time having a good grip on God that's living back into this world, in the midst of all of this, find the rest for your souls are, in other words, for your mind. Man's mind needs to rest. Because when your mind doesn't rest, your body doesn't rest, and consequently then the spiritual man inside is having to react through hard, uh, weary minds and hard, weary bodies. The spirit never grows weary. The spirit never grows hard, but still it has to act through this natural body and through this natural mind, unregenerated as it is, it has to take control of that. And so that limits the ability of the Spirit of God, which never grows weary, it never grows hard, that limits its ability to be as active as it needs to be. I think maybe that might be one of the downfalls of the church. All of it is that we fail to realize that, that the weariness of our mind, the weariness of our body, curtails the activity of the Spirit, which dwells within us. And that's why it's always, now the New Testament same way, is always telling us to find rest for our soul. I think Jesus invited, come unto me, all ye that are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest for your soul, or the intellectual part of you, which is your mind. I'll give you rest for that. All throughout the Bible, it's been known that God realizes that we in humanity have to have a restful mind. It has to be able to relax in the arms of the Lord, regardless of the adverse conditions in our life. And once the church world finds that, now I'm not going to say we're never going to be concerned. I'm not going to say that, in a sense, we're never going to fret a little bit, but to do this to the place where it weakens us and where it causes us to complain and where it causes us to just more or less lose faith the outside world is looking at us. We're proclaiming to God that's able to do this for us, and they are not wanting to listen to what we have to say. They want to know by our actions, is this God really able to give you what you claim in this situation? Not when everything's fine. When everything's fine in their life, they don't need anything either. So they're actually looking for that. Now, the old past, I think that needs some clarification, and I said before, the correct rendition of that from the Hebrew is station yourself on or by the road. In other words, it will come to a crossroads and there's a meeting point on the different roads. And Jeremiah said, now you consider the beginning and the end of both of these roads. Each one leads to a life of some type. One will lead you to a life of 
refreshment and lead you to a life of, of eventually salvation. The other one, though it looks the easiest, is going to lead you into uh, a different, entirely different life that you want, a life of weariness and of heartache and of sorrow, and uh, eventually to a life of eternal damnation. So he's making a challenge here, consider the ways. Now, Israel of old was not blind to what God's way was. They have known the, the laws of God and what God had asked out of them, so they were not blind to what God's laws was. They seemed to have that vision obscured by everything that was taking place in their life. Let's stand there with them a few minutes, and let's watch individuals that had lived a good life that had not uh, sinned really as Israel uh, from the prophet to the priest. Now, when it says this, this doesn't mean that every single individual didn't think about God because as always, God has always had a remnant of some type. So let's consider this small remnant in the midst of this dying nation. And let's consider them watching all their hopes and aspirations fail and fall around them and everything they ever hoped for or prayed for seems to de just degenerate and uh, just, we, well, they stand there and see everything they ever wanted uh, crumbling before their eyes. And let's consider them now, and they're faced with a crossroads. What to do? Whether to follow the uh, path that, where the, uh, well, the multitudes is following, or do we persist in our same way that we've always traveled, even though it looks like it hasn't been the right way when we look at it with a natural eye. What, what are we going to do? And then Jeremiah comes along with this and says, Now you're going to have to make your choice. Israel is going into captivity. And you're going to have to make your choice. Now you can't live and inherit eternal life by following the way Israel as a nation has followed. So you make your choice. And he said, Now what I want you to do is ask for the old paths. In other words, he's saying, Go back to Moses. Go back to the time that Israel was brought out from under bondage. Go back to the time where, with a heavy hand, God led them out and delivered them from Pharaoh's army, opened the Red Sea, gave them water from the rock and manna from heaven and took care of them all that time. And even when they turned their back on him and wondered for 40 years, their shoes didn't wear out of their clothes either one. I want you to consider where you come from. Consider your heritage. Consider what started you. Consider what made you a great nation. Consider this. That's the old paths. And then I want you to walk therein regardless of what the multitude does. I want you to walk therein. And that's the only rest you're going to have. And that's in God. You're not going to find it anyplace else. And then he's saying as far as the multitude is concerned, they said we'll not walk therein. Now then the choice of life simply has to be determined after some thoughtful deliberation. Now, you don't just all at once, and I have found that those that do never last very long, you don't just all at once automatically decide that this is what I'm going to do. That's an abrupt decision. It never lasts very long. And that's the same way when we decide that we're going to start out for God. Thoughtful consideration. What does living for God entail? Exactly what am I going to be called upon to do? What type of life am I going to have to live if I turn my life over to God? 
Now, it looks real good. I mean, when you go into it, everybody promises you a God that cares, a life of peace, a life without any disruption of any type. Seems like the Garden of Eden, but it's not. When you become a Christian, it is not a Garden of Eden, but it is a life that has a good way today and the life everlasting in the future. So there has to be some, really some deliberate and thoughtful deliberation about this and uh, I think he was asking them to do that and God is asking us as he asked them stand in the ways and see you see God never asked us to take anything just because he said it in a sense he he asked us to observe what he has done maybe not what he's doing right now but what has he done before and what he's done before he's able to do again and a lot, of, a lot of times we say, well, you're not supposed to look back. Well, you're not supposed to look back to your sinful life. True. Once you take your hand to the plow and you start in, you're not supposed to look back at your sinful life because when you do, when you look back to the life that you had one time, the devil is going to let you see all the good times you had. It's not going to let you see that he was bringing you down, that he was killing you, and the end thereof is damnation. He's not going to let you see that, and God knows that. So he tells us when we take our hand to the plow, we just plow it for our good and straight and we don't look back. But he does allow us to look back from the beginning of our Christian experience. I mean, there's a lot of times I have got to draw strength from what happened, or what happened to me yesterday. In other words, there's not a lot happening to me sometimes right now. In other words, there's some hard times there's some times when I feel for God and I can't seem to feel Him. Times when I ask for Him in prayer and it seems like a stone wall built between me and God. There's times when I trembling, trembling reach for His hand and it doesn't seem to be there. And then God advises me to look back. Look at the path where I started and see if He hasn't been a good God. Remember the time, He tells us in our life, remember the time when I... And remember the time when you, and so on like that, every one of us have had different, different experiences, and he advises us to look back to those things and draw strength from them. There's nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with it whatsoever. And it's foolish to follow a crowd with no knowledge of whether they're right or wrong. And you find that in the world today, uh, just as long as the multitude seems to be in agreement, why, then here you go. You see a great throng of people coming, you know, and the first thing you know, you say, well, that's a great multitude. They must be right. We don't have a slightest idea whether they're right, right or wrong or not because there's a bunch of them we just get in right with it, like cattle being led to slaughter. And we need to realize that. So it's foolish just to follow a crowd when we don't know whether they're right or wrong or even to follow our own impulses, just blindly and aimlessly following an impulse. You've got to realize that there's two different adversaries inside of us warring for our uh, very being. And any impulse you have is not necessarily a godly impulse. And any time something bids you to follow, uh, you don't just follow that aimlessly. You try it. Look back and see if this is the way it should be done. Anything that God asks us to do is going to stand the test of time. What I'm saying, if there's an impulse in you, uh, just throw it out. Say God impresses you or something impresses you that you need to do something. 
Well, you don't just automatically just get up and do it. You try that thing. It's going to be there. Now, if it's from you, eventually something else will take control and that impulse will be gone. But if it's from God, it's going to be there continually pricking at our conscience, continually working with us. And I would rather, saints, I would rather take too long on God than not enough time. God's a patient God. And He realizes the battle we're fighting. And if He wants something out of us, and you're, you're impressed to do this, wait on God. Just give it some time. I'd advised all the young ministers that's come up under me, and they come up and say, I feel that God has called me to minister. And I don't deny that calling. I never do, because God speaks to those individuals. But I do caution them, give it time. Give it some time. Don't deny your calling. Don't do that. But don't just jump out and put a Bible under your arm and start running up and down the street or trying to find you a church. Give it some time. And let God meet with you. Maybe, maybe He really hasn't called you to preach. Maybe He's called you to do something, but maybe it hasn't. Anytime we receive a calling, we think it's a call to preach. For some reason, I don't know why. But there's a lot of other callings that individuals can do that God impresses us that we do a good job on. A, a job of ministry, that doesn't mean you stand behind the pulpit to, to be a minister out here in this, to a lost and dying world. You could be a Sunday school teacher, a young people's leader, or just, well, numerous things. That's in the Bible that you receive your calling. But still, God does still call individuals to minister. But we need to be cautious on that and consider that and Paul told Timothy, Studies assure yourself approved, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Now, we wouldn't have as many divisions in the church world today if the ministry would have done this. It's to study to show themselves approved, not by man, because most of us never get improved by the, approved by the majority of men, but approved by God. And then rightly dividing the word of truth. In other words, being able to separate it and make it applicable the way it's supposed to be. And if we will do that, why, then God will be with us. So actually in this, the old past, he's not telling us to just follow a crowd or follow our own impulses. But the admonition here is to consider the end of each way. Where is this way that I'm walking? Are these people walking? Where is it going to end? Not where does it start or where am I now, but where is it going to end? What's the promised end to this? And I think consideration given to that. Now, the other ways, when we look out, might look a little bit more pleasant at the onset. You know, the devil can plant a real pretty picture and he can plant flowers right along the way but most of the time when we start out that way, it, this ways of the devil just simply start good, but it leads into a pathless wilderness. In other words, it gets you finally to the end of this path, and you look around, and there's no place else to go. There's, there's a wilderness out there, and you're lost then in that wilderness because you haven't considered the end. Does this path go someplace? And we need to consider that. Now, the good way, and it's always been, looks more rugged and it looks harder and it looks awfully steep at first but we have to bear in mind this we should not ever look for the attractiveness of the way because a lot of things that God asks of us is not attractive we have an example of the Lord Jesus Christ you think the cross was attractive <laughs> you think Gethsemane was attractive <laughs> no sir 
Those are the most unattractive things that I know of, but it washed away. And the Bible does tell us that we have to take up our cross and follow him. So there's a lot of things that's not attractive about this, looking from the human standpoint. But we don't need to consider the attractiveness of this way, but the direction that it is going, which direction it is taking us, and will this path that I'm walking lead me to the final end of my journey where I wanted to go in the first place? In other words, is this going to be a continuous path, regardless of how steep it is, regardless of how many valleys, but it is always going to be a path. It's going to be marked out, and uh, I'm going to find the final end of my journey, and you can rest assured that if you follow the old path with Jesus set forth, that you're not going to be lost in the wilderness. You see, this man called Christ Jesus, this God-man, has made the path and he's walked in it. It's pure and it's simple, and though it's steep and it's rugged, in the final end it's going to lead you into the kingdom of God because Jesus has already walked it. And he's already mapped it out, and it does go someplace. doesn't look like sometimes it's a pretty path but when you get over this hill, you're not going to look out and see a path in. You're going to look and see that path go right down through that valley again, over hill and over valley, through adverse conditions, good times and bad times, tears of sorrow, cries of joy, and all of this. But it's going to eventually lead you into the presence of God. And that's what we need to look for today. There are old paths that are right. Old paths that are right. Salvation doesn't have to be made over again. And the more I consider some of the new ways it's creeping up in our land today, now maybe I'm a little old-fashioned, but not as old-fashioned as you would seem, that there seems to be new ways of salvation. Now there are new ways of doing things, but salvation is never made over again. Jesus did it once and for all. It stands just like he left it, through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not through cults, not through religion, not through organizations, but through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. That stands forever. You can't make a new way. Not the right way anyway. It's not left to the latest saint to carve out a way to God. It's already been made 2,000 years ago, and that's the way it stands. So when you consider the ways, and there's been a lot of ways offered us. There's a lot of people going that way. But when you consider that way, realize that it just wasn't uh, uh, left of these Johnny-come-latelys that come in and everything that's been done for 2,000 years is wrong. Everything that's been done since the 1900 is wrong. We're going to show you the right way to do it. And the first thing you know, they're pushing themselves up. They can't see Jesus Christ for humanity. And friend, they, it wasn't left to them to carve out a way to God. Jesus Christ did that. Not even left up to me to carve out that way. Jesus Christ did that. Not left up to any man in the organization, any priest, prophet, or anything else. Jesus Christ himself has already carved out that way. So having found that way, all right, we found it. But there's something else we have to do about it. We can't stand there and gaze at it and say, this is the right way, this is a good way, I know it is. Uh, this, this is a fine way. I've looked at it, I've decided, I've made up my mind, this is a good way. And uh, so we found it. But that's not all there is to it. The Bible tells us, having found it, we should walk therein. In other words, if you're ever going to get someplace, you have to start, don't you? I mean, you just can't stand and say, I like that road from, from Bird's Eye here to uh, Huntingburg. I like that road. 
and I'm going to be there. And then you just sit here and bird's eye, you're never going to get there. So you have to realize it is a way, it'll take you there, and then you're going to have to start walking therein. Now, knowledge is useless unless we practice it. I mean, you can be the smartest individual in this world, and you can know the Bible from the beginning to the end. You don't practice it, it doesn't do you any good. And we accumulate, a lot of people do accumulate a lot of guilt when we know the right way. And we simply don't walk that way. We know it. It's established within us. We know it's the true way. And then we don't walk therein. And then comes a time when we're lost out here in the wilderness. And then we become guilty. And the first thing the devil says is, Ha ha, you went too far. You can't ever find your way back. But friend, let me remind you of this. As long as there is a desire in the heart of humanity to find their way to God or back to God, there is for your mind. It's not going to be a restful mind in situations that's given over to the lust of your own flesh, the desires of your own flesh, the pleasures of your own life. Once having fulfilled or filled yourself with this pleasure, knowing that there is souls that's dying and individuals that's lost and knowing that you have taken God's time to do your own thing and then once the taste of this pleasure is out of the, your taste buds then there's a guilt complex inside you know that you shouldn't have done it and then your mind is not restful anymore and that's why Jesus tells us to find it to walk in it and then after you walk in it you're going to find a restful uh, disposition overcomes you, comes over you. Okay, so you've had a hard day. Okay, so you've been mocked and laughed at because you've tried to live a good life. And all of this, but friend, you can lay down on your bed at night assured within yourself that I've done the best I could for God today. And there's just a restful slumber and peace that comes over you that this world can't give. There's no possible way that I can give it. But in the right way, I seek out the old paths. And even while we live in this world, there's some resting places. Now, I know we're going to have a final rest. How many of you know that? There therefore remaineth a rest. The Bible tells that. But I am persuaded to believe that I don't have to wait until I enter into the kingdom of God and into heaven to find rest. There's resting places. That's the final destination. I remember on the road a lot of times they, we'd travel, we'd uh, scheduled a little bit close, and we'd have to get someplace. We learned a little bit later that we shouldn't do that, but, but we'd have to get someplace and be along hard driving. We'd drive, and then we'd get tired and weary, and we'd pull over to a rest stop, and then we'd rest a little while. Then we'd go some more, and we'd pull over to a rest stop or something like that, and then we would rest. But these were just stopovers where we kind of refreshed ourselves and finally we got to our destination. We was there. We just laid back and relaxed in the presence of God. And that's the way Christian life is. Your final destiny hasn't been achieved, but there are restful places in the Lord. There are oases in the desert. <laughs> Thank God where you can come to and refresh yourself and sit there as it were a little while. Even when armies fight battles, there's rest and relaxation are in our days that, that they have. And that they, they have realized that individuals have to have this. So in our Christian walking experience, there's watering holes and motels and what have you, spiritually speaking, that we can simply just find our place of rest in. But we need to follow a path 
as I said, that's going someplace. And that has an end that's going to bring us into the perfect and eternal rest in the Lord. Now, Isaiah or Jeremiah was also trying to tell us that you need to find the way that's been experienced and tested. Now, I don't know whether you folks have or not, but I've been to places where I had to have a guide. I didn't know where I was going. <laughs> I just knew I wanted to go there. I didn't know where I was going, and so I had to pick a guide, or somebody in our company had to pick a guide. Now, in choosing a guide, what do you do? Do you go and find a novice that don't know where he's going either? I mean, that just decides that he wants to be a guide, and, and he's acquainted maybe with a particular town, but that's all. And you want to go someplace else, you don't pick him. You choose somebody that's already been over this path, that knows an in and out of where they're going. And that's what, that's what Jeremiah is trying to tell them about the old paths. This way has been tested and proven. Israel always prospered as a nation as long as they honored these old commandments of God. And now then, when they've decided that these are old, fuddy-duddy commandments and we don't have to do them anymore, and God has smiled on us, so to speak, and he hasn't had judgment on us, and a new way has been presented, and it's not near as hard as Moses' commandments, trying to, trying to be good as far as that's concerned. So we walk that way, and it's brought them right now to destruction, to the destruction of a nation. So when we choose a path, even when we're choosing one today, you want to choose one that's been tried. You want to choose one that has had its beginning and has had an end. And uh, others that's went before us have pioneered a way. They have carved out a way in the midst of man's idiocracies and idiosyncrasies and in the midst of his traditions and all of this. And coming out of the dark ages, man has... Uh, prayed and interceded and found a way and pioneered a way and pioneered a work. And friend, it would be wise and advisable for us this morning to avail ourselves of that. There's no use of us taking an axe and go out into the wilderness and being again to carve out a way of our own when it's already been established, when it's pure and when it's holy and when it's good. And because it's got some rough spots in it, to think that we can make one a little bit better is a height of folly. But there's individuals every place, when you look at it, that have reached the goal. In other words, they have proven that it's attainable by their way. All you've got to do is just look at your Bible. What is it the uh, Bible tells us in Hebrews? Seeing we're accomplished about with so great a cloud of witnesses. Let us lay aside every weight and the sin that thus so easily beset us and run with patience this race that is set before us. How are we going to do it? Looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. Amen. So once we have got those individuals that has really earnestly found it, they've carved it out, they have endured the mockery. They've endured the shame. They have been rotten-egged. I can remember when my, and I've said this before, when my father was starting the church at New Haven, they'd throw rotten eggs up against the building and they'd laugh and hoot and, and uh, come into the church to do some uh, disturbances and throw the chicken or a rooster in the church one time and all of these things just to uh, try to do away with that, try to do away with that which is good. But they endured the shame. 
They shouldered the cross. They knew the truth. They'd found Jesus and where He walked. And they shouldered that thing and walked through these places and brought us up to our day and hour where when you say Holy Ghost or Holy Spirit, it's not mocked anymore. Individuals are finding they need it. So what's the use of us trying to carve out another place in the wilderness? Why don't we take hold of that which is already about us? Now, Jeremiah was referring when he's talking that and referring Israel back to the old ways that was marked out by Moses. But now, when we seek our old paths, we don't go back to there. We simply go back to Jesus. And we go back to the teaching of the apostles to the life and example of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the birth of the church in Acts, and to the order and laws given in the writings of the Apostle Paul. And we get a hold of the aspirations and promises and hopes that set before us by the apostles of that day. And then finally, we grasp hold of the final homecoming, the ushering into the kingdom of God that's described by John the Revelator. This is a path marked out. This path is pure and holy. And these are good old ways. But now a word of caution. The old ways should be followed only insofar as they are good. Now there are bad old ways. Amen. And considering the old ways, when we consider them, we ought to take note of the character and the life of those who founded those ways. There have been dark ages in the past. You know that as well as I. Truth has been buried in tradition. Light has been obscured by darkness. And there has been martyrs and corruption soon set in. Anytime man supersedes God, corruption sets in. Anytime man or God can't be seen because of man, corruption sets in. Anytime all you hear is I, 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 me, 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 and I'm doing this, and I'm building this, and I'm doing that, man's building himself a kingdom. Corruption sets in because God is not recognized in this. But when God is recognized, when the old past pointing back to Jesus where he simply denied himself, refused to accept whatever deliverance was there, and then he says the same thing to us. If any man will come after me, let him deny himself, Take up his cross and follow me. And there's significance in the way that's laid out. It just it wasn't happily written that way. First, deny. You can't follow Jesus. You can't even take up a cross if you don't deny yourself. A lot of individuals have said, I want to carry the cross of Christ. Never had any self-denial. They've loaded this cross on them and it's too heavy. You can't carry it with fleshly aspirations. You simply can't do it. You have to first deny yourself. And then you take up your cross, and then you follow him. It's just written that way. So, all right, good old ways and bad old ways. Things are not not good just because they're old. How many of you know that? We've got to look not at the Puritans, not at the Reformers, or the Founding Fathers, or the existing organizations. You can't look at that. You can't look at the Catholicism. You can't look at Luther, although he had uh, an idea of truth when he uh, nailed a thesis upon the, the door and said justification by faith. There was a light that shined through there. And should this uh, organization, so to speak, follow God, then everything would have been fine. But man displaced God. And so actually it became another denomination. 
Episcopalian, Presbyterian, Methodist, Baptist, Nazarene, Church of Christ, Christian Church, just name them, whatever, or even Pentecostals, because they call themselves Pentecostals, is no sign that we can tack ourselves to them. No sign at all, because they are probably as about as traditionalized and the big eyes and little U's anymore as almost any organization there is. And that's not to say they don't have truth. That's not to say that there's not been an area of truth that's been some old paths that's there. But we've got to look simply upon where did man lay Christ down at? When was it that Christ ceased to be the predominant figure in our establishment, in our organization, or in our church? And once you find that, then you find the error of man's ways and he can reconcile himself back to God. I've often said this. I believe in the power of the Holy Ghost. I believe in baptism in Jesus' name. I believe in old-fashioned repentance. But sometimes I think it would be good if every church and every denomination would just simply walk back to the foot of the cross and begin there again by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ and then be brought up by that. A good starting place. And once, if we could just... Find, find where did man miss the mark at? Well, one of these days, we're going to find it. But we pass through a, numerous eras, numerous corruptions of each church. And we have to pass through that. And some way, somehow, as God's people and as the church of God and as individual saints is reaching out to find God, we're simply going to have to reach back past these traditions past these denominations, past these organizations, and reach back to the cross of Christ himself and find there the good way that is outlined for us, the true way. Well, I think the Bible says that he is the way. Didn't he say at one time, I am the way, the truth, and the life? Now, let's don't obscure him. Let's let him be the way. And in our effort to progress, we must never forget that he is the way. Progress has to be. We're to follow the old paths that's good. We're built upon a one foundation and one foundation alone. But we must not be content with just having the foundation. We must not be. And we must not just be satisfied with building a tabernacle on a revelation. Peter would have been satisfied with that whenever uh, Jesus put off his humanity and appeared to him uh, in his divinity. And Peter was so excited, he said, let us build three tabernacles. And Jesus was quick to tell him, no, you don't build a tabernacle just on the revelation of who I am and what I am. Uh, there is a foundation, but then you've got to build a building. Right. You've got to build it to the right way. And the building has to continue to rise higher and higher and higher until it reaches final capstone. You notice a pyramid in Egypt, they, when they build them, they begin this way and go on and reach up higher, and the higher you go, the narrower the way gets. And then eventually there's a capstone there. In other words, that's the final end to it. Well, that's just the same way the church is. It begins broad, it can, the walk continues to narrow a little bit, and then finally it gets up to here. Now the final thing is yet to be. What's that going to be? Man can't produce that. Man is not the capstone. Once man reaches this place, then Jesus Christ himself is the capstone. He puts the final analysis to it, the final finish, and it's done. Church of the living God is perfected by Jesus Christ himself. He puts the final uh, analysis to it, the final end to it. 
So the old path has to be a path of progress. Once we become stagnated, stagnated on just one simple thing. Our forefathers started out, of course, in the early days when the Holy Ghost was poured out, and they received the Holy Ghost, and with that they continued to baptize their same old way until truth came on that. And then we had a revelation of that. And then we seemed to have some way, and a lot of them stopped on that one thing. It's you preach it, repentance, baptism in Jesus' name, receive the gift of the Holy Ghost, and all this is fine and good, best foundation a man can lay, there is no other, but we fail to realize God is expecting us to build a life and build a church on this. Search through the maze of man's ideas and opinions and find Christ in that and begin to make progress building our lives. And if our individual lives are built and built it the way they're supposed to be and we let God shape us the way he's supposed to, then it's just another block in the building of God. We're lively stones, and we're placed there by the hand of God. So we're burdened down, of course, with human ideas, and obscured, so to speak, in a sense, by human institutions. Uh, almost every place you go, it's uh, man is trying to outdo one another. One uh, organization or one church builds a big church, and another one sees he can top that, uh, irregardless, seemingly, of what it's going to cost people out here. And all of this... But yet, human ideas is here, obscured by human institutions, but yet with the church has to be a seed that when planted grows, developing into a larger, fuller life by its own essential principles we have to be. Now, let's remember this, saints. If you don't remember anything else that I've said, true salvation is not to be despised because it's old. I mean, the Ancient of Days, that's God. Do we despise Him because He's the Ancient of Days? But because something is old, it's not to be despised. Truth, when it's carefully studied and spiritually realized, regardless of how old it is, becomes fresh and new. In other words, regardless of how old God is, He's from everlasting to everlasting. But once you get a taste of Him, He's fresh and He's new in our life. And regardless of when we come to Him, 30 years ago, 60 years ago, what, however many years ago, once we get a taste of Him, drink from the fountain of the water of life, and eat of the manna from heaven, regardless of how old this is, it becomes refreshing to us, refreshed anew. I think a lot of us need a good refreshing. We need another uh, dunking in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ and a refilling of the baptism of the Holy Ghost to make God taste good to us again make God feel good for us again. But we, we do have truth, and when we carefully study it, it's one thing after another, not a new truth. How many know that there's a lot of new truths that's being introduced in our time? A lot of new truths. Now, I'm not saying there isn't new revelations. There is. There is. When we fail, and I've said this before, when we fail to realize that God is still building his church, and, of course, Revelations is going to find its place in the Word of God. I mean, if a revelation doesn't, isn't backed up by the Word of God, you forget it. But there's things in there written, carefully hidden, not even to be discovered until 
our day. You remember how the process was? Revelation, it's always within there. When revelation came, refreshed men's mind, they built upon it. And so are we to do the same thing. There's things in there. Some of the greatest things that God has yet for the church is yet to be revealed and acted on. Some of the best days for the church is yet to come. In other words, there's, you know, there's a valley now. There's times when things doesn't look good and we're attacked on every side. But the greatest day for God's church, regardless of all the days it's been passed, is still yet to come. I don't know whether I'll be alive when that time comes or not, but I would sure hate to miss it. I think that's been my cry. God, some way, let me see the finale, grand finale, uh, of the capstone being placed on your church. Let me see it rise in all its splendor, in all its power, all its perfection, and all its glory, and let me watch it stand against the adversary and the powers of hell and put them asunder. Let me see that, God. Because since my uh, Christian experience almost, since I've started in, I saw the good old days. I watched individuals as they came running down the, the aisle. Sometimes the aisle this big was so full of individuals coming down. power of God had been so great, but just simple messages. I mean, there wasn't anything intellectual about it. It just simple message, and it got into the heart of mankind, and they come down hardened sinners with big tears running down their eyes and fell on an altar and repented. Now, I watched them as they stood in the altar, so many that uh, individuals couldn't get to them and help them tarry, so to speak. And I watched them stand there and begin to speak in another tongue as the Spirit gave utterance. And 15 or 20 at the same time received the power of the Holy Ghost. I watched this. I saw it. But since I began ministering, I've never saw anything like that. I've never experienced anything like that. It's, it's been a valley, one valley after another. Uh, uh, churches... Uh, splintering, individuals fighting themselves, Christians demeaning one another, envy, malice, and strife raising up, and you've had to combat that and battle that. You see, what I'm trying to tell you, friend, that as long as we have to battle these things, we can't reach into the Bible to get the great revelations the church needs. And if we got it, the church wouldn't be ready for it anyway. So our problems has got to be solved inside before we gain greater wealth in the Lord Jesus Christ, and I'm speaking proverbially as a church, not necessarily this church. We have our problems, but I'm talking about church, church worldwide, nationwide. Every place you go, you almost see the same thing. And someplace, somewhere, we're going to have to draw the battle line and say, Satan, I'm tired of this. I refuse to do this any longer. I'm a child of God, and my enemy is out there in the world. It's not my brother or my sister. I'm going to turn my attention, my whole strength, to fighting him. And once we do that, revelations we're seeking for is going to come. And I've said this often, we, as God's church, look for the day that God has promised us when there would be healings in abundance, when there would be revival just almost instantly crop up, and when people would even be raised from the dead. We look for that and cry for that. But these are things God has reserved for spiritual-minded people in the house of God. Amen. And we are trying to grasp hold and want those things that are reserved for the spiritual while we walk in our carnality. Amen. Now you say, oh, we're not carnal, but the Bible defines carnality wherein there's envy and malice and strife and divisions. Are you not carnal? Right. It'd be that hypocritical for us to uh, sit here t this morning even to say these things that exist in the churches. They do. 
Now, you might say, well, I'm not a part of it. Well, that's fine. God bless you. You keep that way. But that doesn't mean it's not in the church. And so we're reaching out and wanting, desiring, give us new truth, give us new revelations. And because people demand that, then you're going to find individuals manufacture them. In other words, uh, if you're a pastor of a large church or a pastor of any church and people start demanding new things and new truths and uh, you feel like that that's the only, only way that you're going to be able to hold on to it, so the first thing you know, you're manufacturing new truths, new ways to walk, things to incite people, things to excite them, you know. And so first thing you know, you start promising them new Cadillacs and and all of these things and start promising palaces and all you got to do is just plant a little seed faith and you're going to be a millionaire and all of this. People like this. They like it until it doesn't happen to them. <laughs> Amen. And, and it's crumbling. Empires are crumbling. They've been built on that. That's been new truths. New truths that don't have any Bible to back them up. So when we try to find new truths, when they're introduced to us, we only accept them as long as they can be successfully tied to the predecessors, right. to God. Right. Does your path, question at the end of this lesson, does your path increase your spiritual life? And does it satisfy your soul? Is the path you're walking increase you spiritually day by day? And is the path you're walking in, does it bring satisfaction to your soul? That's the thing that we're going to have to decipher. So in the 16th verse, Jeremiah is crying, and he's saying, I have set a watchman over you, saying, Hearken to the sound of the trumpet. Jeremiah was a very lonely man. Very, very lonely man. And he stood against the falseness of evil, and he stood like Ezekiel and Isaiah and all of them, stood by himself just a lot of times. And he was crying one thing, and they was crying something else. Jeremiah's path seemed harsh. Their path seemed real nice and smooth. Jeremiah seemed hardest, so they accepted the others. And Jeremiah was a lonely man. But remember, at the close of this 16th verse, Thus saith the Lord, Stand ye in the ways. See and ask for the old paths, which is the good way, and walk therein, and you shall find rest for your soul. Thus omit this. Thus don't let that be said of us. But they said... We shall not or we will not walk therein. And then you should read on and find out what he says at the 18th verse. Therefore hear ye nations and know, O congregation, what is among them. You ought to go ahead and read these words. Old pass. How many want to walk?